Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper. I'm once again joined by Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey, Avi. Good to see you. Good to see you all. It's good to be seen. So today on the podcast, we'll be answering the question, what about azithromycin makes it an anti-inflammatory agent? Tony posted a tutorial addressing this question on April 17th, 2020. Along the way, we'll wave our hands while discussing cytokines and wonder whether treating viral infections with a ZPAC may actually make a bit of sense. So Tony, why did you choose this question? Uh, so I think a lot of the listeners know that azithromycin is used um, as part of the treatment of acute exacerbations of COPD. I mean, you kind of learn that uh, first week of your third year medicine clerkship. And this is done even when there's no evidence of a bacterial infection, like you don't need an infiltrate on the chest x-ray. And so there are kind of two possible explanations. E- either there's a bacterial infection that's there and we just haven't been able to diagnose it, or uh, we're using the azithromycin and really any macrolide uh, for some other purpose in this in this scenario. And all through my third year rotations and when I was an intern and a resident, um, people would invoke that second explanation that there's some other mechanism. And and more specifically, they'd say we're using azithromycin for its quote unquote anti-inflammatory properties. Um, so I did that all three years of residency. I did it for years and years as an attending. Um, and it really wasn't until a couple years ago that I started reading a little bit about the mechanism. Like, you know, how did this all happen? And I'll tell you, um, there are very few things that I've looked into that routinely had review articles that were more than 20 pages. And, and this was one of them. Like, it is, it's really complex and multifactorial. So I kind of put it aside for a while. But then uh, in 2020, with SARS uh, uh, CoV 2 pandemic, uh, and sort of the the idea that maybe we should use azithromycin to treat uh, that viral infection. I wanted to kind of look back at this and uh, read a little bit more about these other properties of macrolides. Yeah, that feels um, about a year ago in news cycles, but I guess it was about two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> so we might talk about viral infections later uh, once we've done a little bit of hand-waving about those 20 pages of review articles. But before we do that, can we talk about why anyone would use azithromycin for anything other than as an antimicrobial? Well, how did this anti-inflammatory thing start? Yeah, so um, it started probably in the 1960s. Uh, there were a few uh, studies or reports of the use of uh, triacetylandiomycin, which is a macrolide, and erythromycin. Uh, they were used in steroid-dependent patients with asthma. And the use of these macrolides enabled clinicians to significantly decrease the steroid doses without worsening of their lung function. And they were able to do that in patients who didn't have any evidence of bacterial infections. So this was kind of like maybe a clue that there was something else going on beyond the the antimicrobial properties. But it wasn't really until the 1980s that it became clear that macrolides had some other immunomodulatory, anti-inflammatory kind of properties. And it was with um, the treatment of panbronchiolitis. And what was found, and these weren't randomized clinical trials, but the data is pretty convincing when you look at it, and we'll obviously post about it on the show notes. Over a decade or so period, they noticed a significant improvement in the 10-year survival rate after uh, erythromycin was introduced as a, a standard of care. So it went from about uh, 40% for those who were, were not receiving it to about 90% who were receiving macrolide therapy, a pretty dramatic increase. And it was felt that the macrolides were 
what was contributing to this increase. It wasn't other therapies that were happening at the time. Now, I don't know much about pan-bronchiolitis. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen a case of it. So I'm, I'm not sure, Avi, if you, as the pulmonologist in the room, yeah, want to tell us a little bit about like why this might make sense. I don't know if you know. So it's a form of bronchiolitis found almost exclusively in individuals um, of East Asian descent with who have a progressive decline in lung function, and they can get bronchiectasis, and then in the later stages, um, you know, super infections and such, like other forms of bronchiectasis with the damaged airways. Okay, so we're saying that panbronchiolitis is this non-infectious inflammatory thing, but that macrolides were found to be this massive game changer. So why? Did you did you find anything in terms of what the explanation might be? So there are probably a few different um, uh, potential explanations, and it, you know, as Avi alluded to, like the the disease at its base is an inflammatory disease. And I think that's right. It's fair to say, Avi. It, yeah. It's it's, but uh, patients certainly as they get structural lung disease are at increased risk for infection. So th- there's probably a couple things going on. But in terms of mechanisms, there's probably two main mechanisms. One relates to the pathogens. Um, and then one relates uh, to the immune system. So in order to understand the, these mechanisms, it helps to understand or to be reminded of the mechanism of macrolides. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely not going to so look at the ask- intern in the room, but do either of you guys know <laughs> or remember the mechanism of macrolide effect? All right. Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but I can look it up and to bring it for rounds tomorrow. Uh <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah, we, no, we won't like actually ask you to report out, though. <laughs> uh, as the person who's most recently taken step one. <laughs> so macrolides inhibit um, the 50S subunit of the ribosome, which is the big one. It looks like the marshmallow on top of the graham cracker. Uh, right. So if you inhibit a ribosome, you can't make proteins. And so that's bacteria static to bacteria because bacteria then can't make the cell wall. But in this context, one of the other things to think about is the fact that it means that other proteins can't get made. So things like adhesins, biofilms, uh, instrepneumonumolysin uh, aren't getting made because the bacterial ribosomes aren't working. And that's exactly right. Um, in particular, the marshmallow and graham cracker description. Um, that, was very, that was very apropos. Yeah. Is that not how everyone else remembers what ribosomes look like? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm yeah, we need <laughs> some more metaphors in here. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so, so, but what's nice about that is that you can use, in theory, a macrolide at doses below um, uh, the doses that would lead to killing um, mm-hmm. and uh, or that would inhibit bacterial growth. And you still might see these effects on the toxin production. And you might also see this effect in uh, organisms that macrolides typically don't uh, target. And the, so the classic one is pseudomonas, right? So you can give a macrolide to a patient who has a pseudomonal infection. It may not kill the pseudomonas, but it may reduce the biofilm production of the pseudomonas. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, and this is actually why patients with cystic fibrosis are, you know, are, are treated with macrolides on more of a, of a preventive basis, um, especially if they've been colonized as such. So Tony, you, you mentioned there were two mechanisms. First was this decrease in kind of pro-inflammatory virulence factors from the, the, you know, the mechanism of action of, of macrolides. But this also you know, assumes a, a pathogen is present. So if we use macrolides where, in situations where there aren't bacteria that are causing the problem, you know, we kind of need to better understand that second immune-based mechanism that you mentioned. So what do you got? Yeah. <laughs> 
So <laughs> I'm not going to read the uh, any of the 20 page reviews. Um, because undoubtedly this is complex. We will um, put a few of these in the show notes for those of you who are um, interested in reading more. Um, so we're not going to try to cover it all, um, but it, it's probably useful to mention one general comment about the immunomodulatory uh, effects and then mention one specific mechanism. Um, I, I think that'll probably be the, the best way to cover this. Okay, so what's the general comment that you had? Yeah, so macrolides probably have a biphasic immunomodulatory effect. Um, so early on, after you give the, these drugs, they actually uh, stimulate neutrophils. And this is shown by increased degranulation and, and enhancement of the oxidative response. Um, in this early phase, you also do see a fall in um, chemokine and cytokine concentrations. Uh, and then the later phase is actually a down regulation uh, of this oxidative burst um, and increased apoptosis of neutrophils. Um, so there's actually a lot going on, but I said early on, increased neutrophil function, later decreased neutrophil function, but kind of throughout a decrease in like the cytokines and chemokines and Avi and Hannah can see me, my hands are like very aggressive right now. <laughs> So okay, so yeah. you said so you said an in, there's an increase in neutrophil activity, and then there's a reduction in right. neutrophil activity. Okay. Okay, hence the biphasic. Okay, okay that's the biphasic. Okay. Yeah. So, but um, but there's a continuous reduction in cytokines and chemokines, thus the hand waving. You got it. Okay. So, and what about the more specific mechanism that you mentioned? Yeah. So so there there's more than one, uh, but I'll only mention one, and that's um. Pretty consistent finding that macrolides reduce uh, levels of interleukin-8, IL-8. Mm, I, yeah, IL-8 to um, interrupt you here, Tony, but can you, uh, can you remind us what IL-8 does? <laughs> yeah, we might have to go back and listen to that again. Um, but uh, yeah, so IL-8 is a, you know, it's, it's a considered a chemokine- I, you know, I'm not going to debate whether or not chemokines or cytokines, like what those Venn diagrams look like, but regardless, IL-8 is, is a chemokine. And and what it does is it actually attracts neutrophils. Um, and there's, you know, quite a few studies showing that in situations like COPD, um, IL-8 levels will recruit neutrophils to the lungs. And that's obviously not good for the inflammatory state in the lung. And erythromycin has been shown to inhibit IL-8 release in the airways of patients who have chronic lung disease like COPD. And so, again, in theory, this would suggest that uh, there's going to be a, a decrease in the attraction of neutrophils to those lungs. Got it. So IL-8 draws neutrophils in, macrolides somehow inhibit IL-8 release, and therefore there are fewer neutrophils. So, so do we know how macrolides decrease IL-8 levels? Um, probably, <laughs> at least we have some <laughs> sense. Um, so if you go back to the, the mechanism that Hannah mentioned, um, so the inhibition of the 50S ribosome, uh, in order to do that, obviously macrolides need to accumulate inside cells. And what's really mm -hmm. cool is they do that at anywhere between 90 to 350 times, um, the concentration in serum. Like they just really do a good job of getting inside, um, cells, which is one reason, by the way, they're used for... Uh, intracellular organisms uh, like Legionella. 
Hmm. Um, and they accumulate for an extended period of time. So you might see that the serum level has dropped precipitously and maybe even as close to zero, but out to up out to at least 28 days, you might still see levels that are elevated within cells. What's, what's cool is that the anti-inflammatory activity of macrolides actually correlates with the cellular concentration, not, the, not necessarily the plasma concentration, but the intracellular concentration. And so one study found that um, IL-6 and prostaglandin E2, so not even just IL-8, but these other inflammatory markers, the reduction in their amount was highest at the highest macrolide concentration. So there was a correlation between mm-hmm. how well it's inside the cell and, and the reduction. So the f- first point is, the mechanism relates to it getting inside the cell. Okay, so what is it doing inside the cell? Um, this is where we'll do a little bit more hand-waving, but the, as best we I can tell, at least in the reading that I've done, is that macrolides inhibit uh, nuclear factor kappa B, which is a transcription factor. And through that mechanism, um, it's obviously more complex than that, um, this leads to reductions in IL-8. So I think the key thing to know is uh, a lot of its ability to be an Im- immunomodulator results from the fact that it um, concentrates within, side se- within cells, and so it can affect these transcription factors that lead to inflammatory markers like IL-8, IL-6, and others. Yeah, it's chemo kind of sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So, Tony, you mentioned that the emergence of SARS... So- <laughs> Well, so you, you mentioned early on that, you know, that SARS-CoV-2, you know, made you want to read more about this. So, you know, if, if macrolides are, are anti-inflammatory, you know, what's their role, if any, in, in viral infections? Uh, oh, God. So this is where I feel like I should, like, take a few steps back from the microphone before um, saying anything. Um because we're about is this to aerosol generating. <laughs> <laughs> no, because we're about to like tread near like the Z pack for viral infections realm. Um, mm. So there, there actually is the there is evidence that macrolides have direct antiviral activity, and uh, so if you look at you know one virus, uh, Zika uh, virus, azithromycin has been shown to reduce Zika proliferation in glial cells. Now that doesn't mean that it's a you know a satisfactory treatment for Zika, of course. But it's interesting. And I think it's findings like this that have prompted folks to study it for uh, SARS-CoV-2 because it may have um, effects beyond its antibacterial effects. All that said, you know, tonight is uh, June 4th. And so as of tonight, uh, I am unaware of any evidence showing benefit in patients uh, with COVID-19 treated with macrolides. I'm not sure, Avi, have, has anything come across in your ICU or Hannah, you know, did you see anything in, in the, the last few months? Mm-mm. No. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not, I, I suspect there may be ongoing trials, but I haven't really heard of any. Um, I know it was used as an adjunct for hydroxychloroquine in one trial, but I'm unaware of anything else. But, you know, we've been, you know, poo-pooing, you know, giving Z-packs for viral infections for years, right? Like saying, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not, they're not bacterial infections. Why, why treat them with, with macrolides? So, but have the physicians that, that, that practice that way been doing it correctly all along? Like, what do you think? Yeah, gosh. I, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't advocate the use of macrolides for viral infections for like the, the patient who comes in with a URI, the patient that comes in with um, uh, a sinus infection that you think is viral. Um, but the idea that someone might feel better, um, with, uh, 
uh, azithromycin. It may not be simply the um, the course of the illness. It is possible that they're feeling better because of the effect, the anti-inflammatory effects of the macrolide. I mean, I, I can't say with certainty that that isn't the case. I think the risks of giving macrolides to in in that setting uh, probably outweigh the um, the benefits. But I, I but I can't tell you that they they don't work. And in fact, um, there is uh, some data. Uh, for example, a randomized trial. Uh, show that azithromycin reduces the severity of lower respiratory tract infections in kids. And these infections are typically felt to be viral in nature. So I think the the, the take-home on this is I definitely don't advocate using macrolides in this setting, but if there's a sense that some providers have and some patients have that the ZPAC helped them, I mean, if they have anti-inflammatory properties, it's not a ridiculous idea. And if they have antiviral properties, it's not a ridiculous idea. Um, I'm not sure... If you guys think it's ridiculous. Yeah, Tony, thank you for that beautiful, beautiful, nuanced discussion. So my takeaway is uh, definitely Z-Pack for every viral URI that I see in <laughs> clinic, right? To be, to be very clear, we both do not provide medical advice, and that was sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> now that you're a doctor, th- so to everyone who's listening, this is the first episode that we're recording with Dr. Oh, Abrams. <laughs> Okay, so going back to the part of me that took step one within the past couple of years, going back to nuclear nuclear factor kappa B, NF kappa B, and COPD and all of that connection, right? We already have steroids. One of the big effects of steroids is NF kappa B transcription inhibition. So how what's kind of the connection between the mechanism of azithromycin and steroids? Yeah, you know... It- I've always wondered, like, why why do we even need a macrolide if we're giving steroids? Like, I always felt like you're giving the big gun, the steroid. Um, you are, by giving the macrolide, mm-hmm. it's almost like adding a cup of water to the ocean. Are you really adding that much by adding the macrolide? Um, and what I learned is that, um, and, and Avi, please chime in as the pulmonologist, that, that steroids actually only have a modest effect on airway inflammation and COPD. Um unlike a lot of other inflammatory conditions, like COPD happens to be a situation where, where steroids just aren't as good. Um, and and so the question becomes like, why is that? Um, so typically, steroids decrease the expression of inflammatory genes. Um, and they do this by making sure that the histones that are uh, tightly wrapped uh, around the relevant DNA um, don't uncoil. Right, so if those uh, if the DNA for the relevant inflammatory genes uncoils, then you're going to get a lot of those inflammatory genes being uh, transcribed and lots of inflammatory markers. And steroids somehow, which we'll maybe discuss in the show notes, don't allow that uncoiling. And in COPD, again, we'll post a, a bit more about this in the show notes. Steroids just aren't allowing the histones to remain unwound. And so those inflammatory genes actually are expressed. And so it just, in COPD, these patients who get steroids uh, are able to continue to transcribe these inflammatory genes and have a high inflammatory state, even with the steroids. And so one way to tie it all together is that, um, amazingly enough, macrolides are actually able to restore the ability of steroids to keep histones wound to DNA. And so they actually um, are able to augment the anti-inflammatory properties of steroids, independent of their own anti-inflammatory properties. They kind of like help steroids do their job. 
Like the chocolate on the s'more. Yeah, and I find that like super cool. <laughs> Wait, so that is very cool. So are you call? So you're calling? Earlier you said that the 50th ribosome was a marshmallow and a graham cracker, and okay, that, that, yeah, it's a s'more. But that you, you didn't mention chocolate earlier. Well, that's the little protein ribbon. All right. Okay. Okay. Oh, so I, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I think she was consistent. <laughs> <laughs> I was just totally missing it. That wouldn't be the first time. Well, so, so this is definitely a mixed metaphor. <laughs> so one more cool thing before we close, you know. So, Tony, you had mentioned earlier about the really profound ability of macrolides to concentrate within cells, and it it turns out that they actually concentrate in alveolar macrophages. Uh, really well too. And that actually has both an anti-inflammatory effect by inhibiting the macrophage and an antimicrobial effect on the bacteria that the macrophage have, have already ingested, which I think is a really, again, kind of elegant way that that uh, macrolides have uh, have effects in the lung. Yeah, um, it's, 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 there's something specific about the lung with macrolides. I mean, obviously they, they can work in other conditions, but um, there's something like particularly cool about the ability for them to work in inflammatory uh, lung conditions. The lungs are really, really cool. So, <laughs> like bioavailability, or <laughs> I don't know. So, well, apparently they they concentrate in alveolar macrophages. So I guess that's at least part of it. So, Tony, what are your take on points? Okay, so um, so one uh, macrolides uh, can decrease toxin production. And they can actually do this for bacteria uh, that they don't typically target as an antimicrobial. All right, so that's one. Two, um, iolate is a chemokine that recruits neutrophils, and it does a particularly good job of recruiting them to the lung. Uh, three, macrolides decrease iolate levels in the lung, and as a result, they, four, uh, lead to decreased inflammation in the lung. Uh, and then five, uh, there are many other anti-inflammatory and, and immunomodulatory effects of macrolides that we um, did not cover on this episode that you can be found in, um, we'll post some of it in the show notes, but also in the review articles that we'll make available. Awesome. I'm trying to just store all of this information for my first inpatient block. You uh, can so still just is- say, you know, oh, I'm going to add the azithromycin for its anti-inflammatory properties. That's, you know, I think that's still okay. <laughs> And then I'll be like, and I'll look it up for rounds tomorrow. Uh, Okay, so that is it for today's episode. Next time on the podcast, we are going to be asking, why is normal saline actually abnormal? In the meantime, thank you for joining us. And if you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point that you think that we should feature on the show, please tag us on Twitter. I'm at Hannah R. Abrams. And I'm at Tony underscore Brew. And I'm at Avraham Cooper, MD. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at at CuriousClinPod. Finally, we invite you to join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and receive the show notes for each episode in your inbox. You can also find information about how to obtain CME and MOC credit just for listening to the episodes. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. The Curious Clinicians are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer continuing education and ABIM maintenance of certification credits for physicians. Tap the link in the show notes or visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians for more information.